Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being such a great and gracious God. And as we worship you and continue to worship you in the understanding of your word, we pray that your spirit will shine a light into our minds and into our hearts, bringing us the truth of your word, your life-giving word. And I pray that you would speak in each and every one of our hearts that word that we need to hear for ourselves today. I ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. As many of you know, I love to read about leaders. And of course, there are a great many military leaders, and I love reading about a lot of the military actions that have taken place throughout the centuries. The Civil War, of course, is a curious interest to me. And in May of 1864, as Grant and his troops were marching toward Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, they were met by Lee and his troops at a small crossroads town called Spotsylvania. The battle there lasted 13 days. General John Sedgwick was inspecting the troops. And at one point, he recklessly exposed himself to the enemy. He just simply stood up above the parapet, the wall, whatever it was that was in front of him. And the officers who were there present said to him, General, this is unwise. You put yourself at risk. And the general said, Nonsense. They couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. And he dropped dead right then. He was mortally wounded. It is not unusual for generals or for officers to expose themselves to danger to inspire their men. But Sedgwick's words suggested something more. They were filled with arrogance. Unrealistic, diminished view of the enemy's capabilities matched by an unrealistic, puffed-up view of his own immortality. He had fought at Bull Run, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and ten other battles surviving three major wounds. He likely felt that nothing could kill him. Arrogance cost him his life. And that's the way it is with arrogance. Today we're going to be talking about arrogance, and we're going to be looking at it from the book of Isaiah. But before we dig into that, I want to make sure we understand what arrogance is. The the dictionary tells us that arrogance is inordinate pride. It's haughtiness. It's conceit. Hubris. Self-importance. Egotism. A sense of superiority, all the things my family thinks I possessed. I am gifted. (laughs) Just kidding. Maybe not. (laughs) 
better look at my wife. Now, what I want to say about arrogance is we should not confuse arrogance with confidence. Arrogance is not confidence, and confidence is not arrogance. Arrogance is a spiritual problem. Satan fell victim to it. Adam and Eve fell victim to it. Humanity has fallen victim to it and continues to fall victim to it. It is a twofold problem. First, arrogance denies the greatness of God. And second, arrogance claims the greatness of God for yourself. Arrogance denies the greatness of God while claiming the greatness of God for yourself. Now, it is not unusual for people of faith to attribute arrogance to the world. And it is even not unusual for people of faith to say that at one time we were arrogant. But we should not think because we believe in Jesus that we are immune to arrogance. Arrogance is a spiritual problem that can afflict everyone. And if it goes unchecked, arrogance leads to destruction. Isaiah will speak to us today in chapter 3 of the arrogance that was leading Judah and Jerusalem and God's people to destruction. They were at the height of their influence and power. And they had a puffed up view of themselves. Now the text in this chapter and in chapter 4 is a continuation of the prelude which Isaiah has placed at the beginning of his book. And we believe that Isaiah was inspired to do this by God. Chapter 1 begins with a court scene where God calls heaven and earth to be witnesses, just as he called heaven and earth to be witnesses when he established a covenant with his people. Chapter 2 is when he speaks of the great judgment that is coming. And chapters 3 and 4 are nothing more than a continuation of these things. Now if you would open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 3 and 4. I won't read all the verses as we go through it, but I will uh, comment on it. And you may want to look down as uh, as I do. In the very beginning, as Isaiah is speaking about this judgment coming, he says, For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. This term, the Lord of hosts, is telling. It is Yahweh, Sebaoth, the self-existent, redemptive God of Israel, who is over all of the angelic armies, who has established, preserved, and provided for his people for more than 700 years. He told them as he established that covenant, at that time, 
that they should choose life by following and obeying him. Like us over time, though, it is easy to be complacent. And they became complacent. They took this relationship with God for granted. They forgot the source of their strength. It comes from God. Instead, they became puffed up and arrogant. They were flourishing now, but destruction and a downfall was coming. They had attributed all the trust that God wanted in him to themselves and in themselves. And instead of trusting in God, they were trusting in what God had provided for them. They placed their trust, we read in these first seven verses, in the abundance of food and water. God had provided this for them. God said, this will be removed. They placed their trust in their leaders. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the army, the counselors and the people of wisdom even though it was God who had gifted those people and provided them for his people. God said, this also will be removed. And instead of great men leading you, it shall be boys and infants. No one left with natural abilities will be able to lead and the social order of this nation will collapse into violence and chaos. And scholars note, as they comment on this section, that it is not unlike the conditions described in Jeremiah chapters 40 through 42, where Judah is finally overcome and taken into captivity into Babylon. Well, this is the first scene of human arrogance. The second scene of human arrogance is from verses 8 through 15. And this is what we read, and we'll read through these particular verses. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The King James Version puts it this way. Instead of defying his glorious presence, it says to provoke the eyes of his glory. What that means is they had an inflated opinion of themselves and they dared to think that they could see as God sees, that they were as wise as God. Who can see what God sees? unless God shows it to you. He is God, and we are but mere mortals. Pastor Tim, last Sunday, did an incredible presentation on chapter 2. And in it, 
he brought us to verse 11, an important verse, and he pointed out to us, and we'll read it again here. I'll read it again here to you. The haughty looks, that is, the eyes of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. That is what Isaiah is talking about here in verse 8. Provoking the eyes of God's glory. Verse 9 speaks about the unrestrained nature of arrogance. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. They are so arrogant, there is no shame. They revel in it, thinking nothing of it. Not unlike General Sedgwick. Their arrogance is about to bring about their downfall. Then in verses 10 and 11, Isaiah speaks to the cause and effect nature of our relationship with God. If woe comes upon the wicked, then the righteous need to know that it will be well with them. Look at verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. And then in Verses 12 through 15, God speaks of his judgment against the arrogant leaders whom the people have trusted to lead them instead of God. Let's read those verses. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. God is angry. These arrogant leaders have misled the people. They have oppressed the poor. They have rubbed their faces into the dirt. They are not servant leaders who have tended God's vineyard, his people, but they have served their own ends. They have ruined the nation with their greed and their lust for power. And they have brought impending room upon Judah and Jerusalem. Finally, we see the third scene of human arrogance in chapter 3, verses 16, all the way through the end of the third chapter into the first verse of the fourth. Now these verses address wealthy women. But I believe these verses are not just about women, but their husbands also. It is speaking to the social situation 
that exists. It is addressing that there is a misplaced value upon affluence and status and materialism and sexuality and vainglory in attention-seeking. Does it sound familiar? That's what we live in today. That's our culture. And we who are the church need to be careful that we do not emulate the culture. It reminds me of what Jesus said. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? In their arrogance they have ascribed value to the things of God, valuing the gift more than the giver. It's not always easy for us to realize that's what we do, but it is something that we do. I remember early on in my ministry, God brought this lesson home to me pretty quickly. Now my wife and I had a whirlwind courtship. Three months and we were married. And we were together four years before we had our first daughter, Andrea. And my wife met me when I was a pastor, so she had some idea of what she was getting. Well, not really, right? <laughs> but six months into it, our daughter was six months old. She said, Craig, we need to talk. And she sat me down and she said, I am really struggling. I don't know if I love you. I don't know if I want to be married to you. I know I don't want to be a pastor's wife. And we talked. It was a sobering moment. And I am grateful for that moment and grateful for her honesty. And we spent two weeks praying about it, at least that was the agreement. And it was somewhere about a week into it, and I was in an awful lot of pain, and she could see it, and she said, Craig, can we talk now? And I said, but we had said that we would wait for two weeks, and I've asked God to release me from ministry. I don't know what he's going to do. And I won't make a decision about that until he tells me. Because if I choose the gift that he's given to me over the giver, then I'm certain to lose her. Well, needless to say, Marcia told me that she loved me. And it's been a dream ever since. It was a good moment, a hard moment, but a good moment. And I realized I was tempted to choose the things and blessings of God over God. And it brought that lesson home to me in a way I never imagined and I've tried to never forget ever since. 
The text in this scene goes on to say that their arrogant heads shall be bowed in shame and their beautiful hair shall be shaved, exposing the sores underneath. The jewels will be taken away, the clothes will be stripped off and replaced with burlap. And extending into chapter 4, it says that these women will be brought low. There will be more humiliation. There will not be enough men to go around. We read in verse 1, in seven minutes, Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day and age, having no family connections was a shameful thing for women. And it caused them not only to feel shame, but it was fraught with great fear. Again, I believe that this is not just speaking to women, but it is speaking to all of us who value affluence and materialism and all the things that we think are important that are the blessings and gift of God more than God. The point is that arrogance will lead to humiliation and downfall. Now looking at the application of this, if there is anything for us to understand and consider, it's this, that arrogance leads to self-destruction. I could say just destruction, but in the text it says that they brought this on themselves. It is self-destruction, and that is true if you think about arrogance. We are bringing it on ourselves. Arrogance leads to self-destruction because it denies the greatness of God and claims it for yourself. My friends, arrogance has many faces and many arenas. Wealth, education, political power, status and stature, military power, beauty and good looks, even religious life. Always the problem is the same. In arrogance, we exalt ourselves over others and over God. We exalt ourselves over others by having disdain for them, feeling superior to them and entitled to them. It expresses itself in trusting in the blessings of God over God himself. Why? Why is it that we become arrogant? Well, arrogance is not confidence gone awry, my friends. Arrogance comes from insecurity. It may come from more but I could tell you that the arrogance I've experienced in all of my life comes from insecurity, and that is true. And at the heart of all insecurity for us as human beings is our mortality. Consider what God says in chapter 2. As Pastor Tim taught us last week, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, 
For of what account is he? We are a mere breath, here one day and gone the next. There is no security for us except in the eternal God, the Creator, our loving Father. He knows that we are but a hand breath. And he knows that our greatest need is for him. And that's why he came. He came for the cross. He came to show us his heart. And he came to redeem us from our sins and to forgive us. And he came to place his covering of righteousness over us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And for all who will choose him and receive him, he gives us the right to be called children of God. This is the gospel. This is the truth. This is the very same God who is passing this incredible judgment. God is our security and God is our confidence. It is as Jeremiah wrote, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Now the solution to this problem of arrogance is not overt in our text today. But we can find it in chapter 2 in a brief statement about humility. And we can find it in chapter 4 in the return of God's people to a right relationship with God. Both occur, both of these texts occur in the messianic future kingdom of God. Let's read verses 2 through 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Those who will enter into this future messianic eternal kingdom, they will not be arrogant. They will not substitute false security by denying the greatness of God and claiming it for themselves. They will, however, recognize and accept the greatness of God and the lowliness and need that they have. The lowliness of themselves and the need that they have for God for the forgiveness of sin, for his provision, and for him to walk with us each and every step in a real and ongoing relationship. So we read finally in verses 5 and 6, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame fire by night, 
For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. This is imagery that reminds us of the Shekinah glory of God that went before and behind His people during the Exodus. In this new kingdom, we will walk with God in humility. And we will trust God above all else, recognizing and accepting his greatness while recognizing and accepting our own lowliness and need for him. This is the solution to our arrogance. And so that leads us to the big idea today. Because arrogance leads to destruction, walk in humility by recognizing the greatness of God and your lowliness and need for him. Now before I close, I want to remind you that arrogance is not just the problem of the world. It is a spiritual problem that can manifest itself in the people of God. And as we go through Isaiah, and God is speaking judgment and hope to his people, in this Old Testament covenant book, we, the church, must look at ourselves in this new covenant that we have with God through Jesus, and examine ourselves and be honest with ourselves so that we may not be found lacking. Do not think, my friends, that there is no danger in you ever becoming arrogant. We all can. We must keep constant vigilance over our walk with God. Trusting God above all else. Trusting Him to guide our steps. Allowing ourselves to walk with Him and never allowing ourselves to be seduced to worship creation or the blessings of God, but rather to worship the Creator and the the giver of those blessings. If we choose to worship, love, and enjoy the giver of all things, the Lord God, And his son, the Messiah Jesus, who washes us clean of our sins through the grace by our trust in him. And his spirit, who indwells and empowers us. Then we will walk in humility into eternity, having learned the lesson of eternity here in this mortal place. I believe it is the lesson that we are meant to learn. That God is great above all things. He is truly worthy of our love and devotion and service. And that it should be our goal to be fully submitted to him. Because that is how we will live with him in eternity. To God be the glory. And God's people said, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are such a good and gracious God. We know that you are to be feared. 
And we know that there is a reckoning, for you will judge all, including us. But we also know of your deep love through Jesus. I pray if there are any here who question about it, Lord, or are unsure, I pray that you will give them a sense of assurance. I pray that you will give them the courage to talk to someone today after this service and to share with them their doubts and their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you will begin to use us to assure them of your love, that they may trust in you. For God, you are truly great, doing more than any of us can imagine. How I, how I celebrated this morning when my brother Rabbi Jake put his hand on my shoulder when we were praising you. Who gets that? Who gets to do that? Yet these are the kinds of things you bring into our life. You are great and worthy to be praised. And we, Lord, we stand in need of you. We are fallen, but you have provided the one who can pick us up, Jesus. And we thank you for your great love. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.